Matthew 6, beginning in verse 16, Jesus speaking still. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may be seen by others, not by others, sorry, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my heart, my mouth, and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Some of you, I wouldn't point you out, some of you are old enough to remember the 80s. And uh, it, it, there was one thing still floating around from the 80s that I remember from elementary school. It was a slogan that was born in the Reagan years, uh, just say no, right? You remember that one? Just say no. And that was part of Nancy Reagan's anti-drug campaign. It was a simple answer to a huge problem, which is why it didn't help very much. But... Um, Saying no is one of the hardest things in life to do, I find. You all know that I'm a people pleaser by nature. I hate saying no to things and to people, even though, as a pastor, I spend a good portion of the week advising other people to say no to things. When you don't know how to say no, you can stretch yourself impossibly thin. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble. Most of us would be much healthier if we said no more often. No to drugs, no to the extra hours at work sometimes, no to our kids, right? Kids are kids that are used to hearing no a little more are typically more stable kids, and every parent knows this. And yet, uh, even though we know this, many of us struggle to say no even to them. And more than anything, I think we struggle especially to say no to ourselves. Who here likes saying no to themselves? I mean, it's kind of impossible to enjoy that by definition. If I say no to myself, but I really didn't want the thing, then I'm really kind of saying yes to myself, see? Like, for example, if if Reverend Green brings in kale and offers it to me, and I say, no, thank you, I'm not really denying myself, right? (laughs) It's a selfish no, a completely justified selfish no, but it's it's a no, it's selfish, because I'm ultimately getting what I want. See, it's a tangled web that we weave. So legitimately saying no to yourself is a challenge for all of us because by definition, we want what we want, right? And nowhere is this more obvious and tangible than when it comes to food. It's kind of like the old Apple Jacks commercials also from the 90s. We eat what we like, the kids would say, right? I might add we eat when we like, right? We say yes to food several times a day, typically, normally three times, but often with snacks in between. And in my house, uh, sometimes we might add midnight cheese to the rotation. We eat more like hobbits, right? Seven meals a day or so. And look, it's not a sin to eat. I mean, it's worth pointing out that Jesus just said to pray for our daily bread, did he not? So we say yes to food, and generally speaking, I think that's fine. That's a good thing. But fasting is one obvious way that you can say no to yourself. The simple definition of a fast is not to eat, and that's why breakfast is called break fast. It's also why it's such a great meal. 
You literally wake up, and the first order of business is to break your fast, because even those of us who are very gifted do not have the ability to eat in our sleep. So it's the one time where we all actually take a break from eating. But there are many other reasons why someone might fast for a time other than sleep. You might miss the occasional meal because you're on a diet. That's a sad and heartbreaking reason, but it's a common story. Uh, I would like to lose weight, but I don't know how to eat reasonable portions. So skipping meals entirely is often the only way to keep things under control. Uh, Sometimes you just run out of time, like this morning. Like, for instance, if you were to forget the liturgies at home and have to turn around and go back, and then you come back and there's not really any time or food left downstairs, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Some people skip meals when they're depressed. Other people eat more when they're sad, but for some people, sadness is a a definite appetite killer. Some people skip meals for cost-related reasons. They can't afford to eat or they're trying to save money. Some people miss meals because there simply is no food available. That's true in countries where there might be a drought or a famine. Children will sometimes simply forget to eat when they're excited. I cannot tell you how many times we have been in the process of leaving a family party at which we have been all day and only for one of my kids to say, wait, we didn't get any dinner. (laughs) Sometimes they wait until we're home and then ask my wife what she's going to make for dinner because they just spent the entire afternoon and part of the evening playing with their cousins and ignoring the veritable smorgasbord in the kitchen. Anger can make you skip meals. Uh, I have been known to pretend I'm not hungry when I'm angry, either because I'm angry about the meal itself or something else, but the effect is the same. So we have many reasons we might fast, but that's obviously not what Jesus is talking about here. Fasting in the scriptural religious sense is not merely missing meals. Anyone can do that for the reasons I've mentioned and many others, but it hardly qualifies as a religious exercise. It's entirely possible to be hungry without being holy, is what I'm saying. It's also possible to fast for religious reasons and still be doing it wrong, and that's part of what Jesus is getting at here, right? Uh, Fasting comes with the same dangers and temptations as generosity and prayer did. Jesus assumes that we will be tempted to turn fasting into a show, that we will do it to impress other people. Now, one easy way to avoid this problem is not to fast at all, right? Uh, If I'm honest, that's my general practice. Uh, I I fast occasionally, but not usually for pious reasons. I skipped four meals in a row earlier this week, but mostly out of vanity because I was in a bad mood about something. But Jesus says that the same risk is inherent even in legitimate fasting. We can't help it. We do almost everything for show and for the wrong audience. But fasting is unique because it requires a little bit of effort to show off that you're fasting. Uh, If nothing else, think of it this way. Fasting is unique because if I give money, we talked about almsgiving. If I give money to somebody, someone's inevitably going to know about that. My wife is going to see the the, the checking account. Uh, If I give it to the person, the recipient's going to know that they received it, you know, or even if I give it through an intermediary, they're going to know that I gave money, right? Somebody's going to know. If I pray in a group or in public, everyone is going to know that I'm praying. But no one knows when you're fasting unless you do something to make it obvious. Like the fact that none of you that I can see right now are eating at the present time, right? That's not sufficient evidence that any of you are fasting, I take it, right? 
We're not cows. We're not always chewing, right? Even the most gluttonous person doesn't spend every minute eating. Fasting is not obvious. Therefore, to receive the approval of people, we have to go out of our way to publicize it. Now, the Pharisees, it's a very thinly veiled thing here with Jesus when he says hypocrites. Uh, The Pharisees fasted two days a week, like clockwork, every Monday and every Thursday. And so they didn't really need to advertise it especially, right? Everybody knows that well, they're the fa- yeah, he's a Pharisee, he's going to be fa- you know, fasting today. But you can imagine feeling the need to let everyone know that you're doing it right at that point. How else are people going to know what a g- good example I am? How are they going to imitate my piety if they don't see me fasting? So... Jesus takes a pretty direct swipe at the Pharisees. They don't just fast. They make a point of looking miserable about it. I myself am a master of the art of looking gloomy. It's a specialty of mine, fasting or not. But Jesus is saying, if this is how you fast, then you're doing it wrong. In fact, if that's your method, you'd be better off not fasting at all. If you advertise your fasting, then you're screwing it up. If you act irritable and are hangry the entire time, you're doing it wrong. When you fast, it should be just about impossible for anyone to know it. And to that end, he basically tells you to go gussy yourself up. Wash your face, smile, wear makeup, etc. Give no indication that you're hungry. And again, this is an extension of what he's already told us about giving and about prayer. The point is, don't do this for a human audience. It should be a secret known only to you and God. But we find that very hard. We find it hard for the same reason that the murderer at the end of the last novel I read said in his confession. He said, no artist can be satisfied with art alone. There's a natural craving for recognition. I have a pitiful human wish that someone should know just how clever I have been. If we're going to go hungry, we want people to know how clever we are being. So advertising our fast is a bad way to go, which is a good reason for I would say, not requiring regular mandated fasts. If you fast every Monday and Thursday, everyone's going to know it. If everyone is required to fast through Lent, it makes it so that nothing is secret. The entire thing is public. Up to and including the actual use of ashes in some churches. If you'll recall, during COVID, uh, some of the local churches were offering drive-through ashes. You know, like Jesus commanded. Um, So people literally advertised their intention to fast for 40 days, or at least pretend to fast, from something. Not from food entirely, but I don't know, whatever. You give up ice cream, Facebook, coffee, whatever. And I think this is not what Jesus is talking about. There is no general commanded fast anywhere in the New Testament. Nowhere are Christians given explicit orders to fast on the following dates. And we're certainly not supposed to advertise it, even if we were. So I thought about this, and I thought, all right, well, fasting through Lent, that's kind of a prominent thing you know, among Catholics and some Protestant churches. Uh, but then I remembered, remembered I, I did a weird thing in a PCA church growing up. I was in a youth group, and we did this thing called the 30-hour famine. I don't know if that was a thing up in these parts, too. Uh, but we were literally supposed to fundraise off of our fast in order to feed the poor. Uh, 
So this required you to send a letter to all of your aunts and uncles and grandparents, letting them know you were going to fast so that they would be impressed and write a check. And then your youth leader would try to encourage this, like, oh, you know, it's a competition. Who can raise the most money? It's like, I can answer that. It's the kids whose uncles and aunts and grandparents have more money. And, you know, it's okay. So it's kind of like running a marathon at that point or something. I'm not sure that fits the Jesus model either is my point. It seems to me that most Christians seldom fast, and when we do, we want credit for it. In other words, most of us are doing this wrong. Now, I think more can be said about fasting than what we read here in this passage, obviously, because this is a very short passage, and Jesus doesn't answer all the questions here. He doesn't give specific dates on which to fast or occasions where to fast. He doesn't tell us how long to fast or what to fast from and exactly what this should look like. His guidance here is kind of limited. But it's worth noting that Jesus is hes in the process of sort of summarizing the do's and don'ts of Christian uh, piety, and fasting made the cut. Uh, many have observed that he says, when you fast, not if, meaning he assumes that his disciples will fast and that they will be tempted to advertise it, and that's why he gives guidelines. He expects us to occasionally say no to ourselves. Fasting has a place in the Christian life. And yet, my guess is that out of giving, praying, and fasting, fasting is the most neglected. And perhaps that's because we misunderstand its purpose. What is the purpose of fasting? Some of you may remember when we first moved to Allentown, our first year here, there was an incident that took place, an epic showdown, the incident of Gwen and the soup. (laughs) Gwen was not and probably is still not a huge fan of soup. She used to mispronounce it with a P, (laughs) which might not have been a mistake in retrospect. But Gwen had often spent entire dinners playing with her soup and not eating it. Now, I've been married to Georgia for 17 years. I have known her long enough to know that her soup is not nearly as bad as it used to be. She has sown admirable market improvement, and she deserves credit for that. But Gwen didn't see it that way. She refused to do anything with it, and Georgia decided in this instance she's going to play tough. And it started with the, the standard opening gambit of we're denying you dessert, right? There's no dessert if you don't finish your dinner, right? But Georgia stepped up to a trick that her mother had once used. If you don't eat it now, you'll have it for breakfast. But you will eventually eat it. Gwen's smirking over there. She likes this story. Gwen would not budge. Talk about just say no. No lie, that child ate not a blessed thing that we know of for three days. She sat and stared at that bowl of soup. She got thin and wilty and slightly lethargic. We worried that she was actually sick. We became fearful that someone would report us, and yet... In the end, it was all just a battle of wills. She would rather eat ice cream than soup. 
And to the best of George's knowledge, we think we caved on Easter Sunday because we felt like we couldn't do this tour on a holiday. Now, before this happened, I never understood hunger strikes. You would hear about prisoners of conscience sometimes staging hunger strikes, and I always thought to myself, why would that make a difference to the people holding you in a gulag? They put you here because they don't like you. Now you're hungry too. Okay, who cares, right? If you're hungry, that's your loss. But then Gwen pulled this stunt, a fast to rival Gandhi. And George and I were like reduced to tears and driven to madness. We questioned everything about our parenting skills. We thought to ourselves, like, after five successful children, what is she doing to us? And it's then that I realized that hunger can be a real power move. And I wondered, you know, as I thought about this, is this why so many teenagers develop this temporary eating disorder thing in high school? How much of it is designed to control their parents and the situation around them? Georgia and I nearly cracked up by the end of this affair. And like I said, I, we don't really remember how it got resolved, and maybe we traded a spanking for a new meal, I don't know. She obviously survived, and so did we. But frankly, it's all kind of a blur, uh, which makes me suspect we probably blinked and caved. Uh, Gwen had succeeded in making it abundantly clear to us that she was willing to starve herself to avoid that soup, and even if we won the battle, she had forced us to make significant adjustments in our tactics. And I suspect that most of us think that this is how fasting is supposed to work, kind of like a hunger strike. We make ourselves miserable to prove to God just how badly we want something, and we are trying to bend his will and get him to give us what we want. I don't think that's what biblical fasting is about. Hunger strikes are not biblical. I love you, Gwen, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. So what is the purpose of fasting then? What's the biblical model? We've seen now that Jesus says there are certainly some wrong ways to do it. What are some good ways to do it? When should we do it? What good is it going to do? Well, since Jesus doesn't go into a ton of detail right here, I thought maybe it's worth looking at the Old Testament for guidance. Because we have plenty of examples in the Old Testament of times when fasting was appropriate. Times and seasons where fasting just made sense. And as you look deeper into the matter, you realize that fasting never happens in a vacuum. It's meant to accompany prayer. Either prayers for repentance or prayers for future endeavors or some combination of the two. But fasting is a way of focusing your prayer life. Now, at first blush, that can sound strange because being hungry can also be a distraction from prayer. I, I've experienced that. But, you know, even that has a way of humbling us and reminding us that we're finite, which is a good thing to remember sometimes. Fasting often accompanies repentance in the Old Testament. If you go to the book of Nehemiah in chapter 9, the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem after their exile in Babylon, and the people fasted, and they wore sackcloth, and they confessed their sin. They even repented of their father's sins that had brought on the exile to begin with. So it was a well-rounded and thorough repentance, and in that time, fasting was appropriate. When Jonah preached to Nineveh, they repented but they repented as the king also declared a fast. Fasting was a common way to express sorrow over your sin. 
In a sense, it's similar to what I said earlier about skipping meals because you're sad. If you are grieving over your sin, if your sin makes you sad, fasting is one way to show that. Now, those are both examples of corporate fasts, and they're not necessarily binding now, right? We're not still going to fast over the same issue, but my point is that repentance and fasting often go together in the Old Testament. And if a season of repentance is called for even today, fasting might still be appropriate. Uh, It's an appropriate way not to compensate for your sin, but to express sorrow over your sins. It's not works righteousness. It's acknowledging your sin. Another similar example in some ways is the, when David fasted. He fasted when his child with Bathsheba was dying. Now in that case, this was explicitly a punishment from God for David's adultery and for his murder of Uriah. So his fasting was at once a, a fasting of repentance, but it was also a fasting of a request. He's asking God to spare the child. But he stopped when the child died. And I think that's an indication that fasting is not meant to be an open-ended thing. You fast for something specific, and you stop when God has answered you, whether the answer is what you wanted or not. Fasting is something you do for a specific reason. Esther asked all the Jews to fast with her when she was preparing to face her husband, the king. The future of her nation was in her hands, and so she asked them to fast with her and on her behalf. And that same fast has been commemorated annually annually by Jews at Purim. So those are just some, that's a cursory glance at the Old Testament and fasting there. And and we see that fasting could be corporate, it could be personal, uh, it could be oriented toward repentance or just special requests before God. But generally, I would say the two things stand out. First, that fasting comes during times of crisis or major decisions, and not just for funsies, right? The Old Testament saints never just say no. They they do it for a specific purpose. And secondly, fasting was always meant to be accompanied by prayer, almost as if it was meant to supercharge your prayers. But that doesn't give us any exact answers for how to do fasting today. There were a lot of cultural and holiday fasts in, in Israel that are not binding on the church, and many of the biblical examples of fasting were very specific to their time. We don't need to fast in repentance for the Babylonian exile anymore. I don't think that's necessary, for instance. So, like anything else, we end up turning to Jesus and the apostles to give us guidance. And so I thought, well, what does the New Testament have to say about this? And I I did say earlier, I think fasting is a much neglected practice in the church. I think that's true. I know it's neglected by me. And I know that what little fasting we do is often in violation of Jesus' warning here. And I... I think that a common way that this passage ends up getting applied by many pastors is as a call for Christians to fast more often and to do so with a better attitude. Uh, And again, that Jesus assumes we're going to fast. It's tempting to stand here and tell us all, like, well, we all need to fast more. And that's a little unsettling for those of us who don't like it. But honestly, I I personally felt very ill-equipped to preach on fasting today, and I, I confess I did very little this week to prepare for it. I mean, like I said, I fasted earlier for a portion of the week, but only because I was martyring myself over something stupid. And I'm going to be honest with you, I spent the rest of the week making up for it. (laughs) Kenny and I were talking about this on Friday, because after wrapping up an obscenely large breakfast, I had to reflect on how am I supposed to preach on fasting after eating that much bacon. 
And honestly, I, I kind of dreaded this passage because I thought to myself, I don't like fasting. I feel like even studying this issue is just going to leave me feeling guilty. But a funny thing happened as I was looking into fasting in the New Testament. What struck me is how little it comes up. You do see it mentioned, but a lot of the stories are just repeats across the Gospels. And when it does come up, it's never in the form of a clear command. The New Testament seems, other than in this passage, the New Testament seems surprisingly kind of reticent on the question. In the Gospels, outside of this passage, fasting comes up in just a few places. Uh, We read that Jesus fasted in the wilderness before he began his earthly ministry, right? But we're not told to imitate that specifically. We're told that the Pharisees fasted, but we're also told that they were hypocrites about it, and we don't want to be like them. We were told that John the Baptist and his disciples fasted, but it's also true that John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was following Old Testament patterns. I don't think that that's necessarily binding on the church. In fact, Jesus is criticized because his disciples don't fast. Some Bible translations have Jesus saying in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 that certain demons can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. Some of you have memorized it that way. I had. But in both of those instances, the sources disagree. Some manuscripts mention fasting. The older ones do not. And that's why fasting only appears as a footnote in those passages in the ESV. So I don't think that that's conclusive. The New Testament doesn't tell us to observe any particular holiday fast. And amazingly, the epistles are completely silent on the matter. Fasting doesn't appear in a concordance search. It gets mentioned not once from Romans to Revelation. That surprised me. I was reading John Stott's commentary. He makes the case for fasting as just an act of self-discipline, and he uses Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 9 about beating his body into submission to make that point. But I couldn't help wondering why Paul, when he had the opportunity and was never shy about his opinions, never actually mentioned fasting by name. No commands, no guidance. Shortly after Jesus' sermon here in Matthew 9, and this is echoed in Mark and Luke as well, we read that Jesus' disciples have a reputation and are implicitly criticized for not fasting at all. We read in Matthew 9 that the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And you can hear the resentment in the question, right? And Jesus' answer is basically, Don't worry about it, they'll fast when I'm gone. He says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But even that's kind of cryptic, because does he mean when the bridegroom is taken to be crucified? Or when he gets taken up into heaven? I'm not clear if this is a comment on the future habits of the church, or if it's merely a statement that his disciples will mourn and fast when Jesus is in the grave. Here's what I'm getting at. Jesus fasts at the start of his ministry, but he never fasts again. He goes around feeding people. That's his reputation. His disciples eat and drink and party to the extent that Jesus is accused of being a drunkard. 
He feeds thousands of people on multiple occasions. Food is his jam, if you'll forgive the dad joke. Jesus won't even let his disciples fast. He eats with them right up to the end. He gets to the Last Supper. He's at death's door and says, I've really been looking forward to this meal with you guys. It sounds to me like he likes to eat. The only thing that stopped him and his disciples from eating was his death. And yet when Jesus comes back, and in Luke 24, he visits his disciples, who are meeting secretly, hiding out in that room in that house. He shows up, and what's one of the first questions he asks them? What have you got to eat around here? And how does he make himself known to the disciples on the Emmaus Road? They get to the hotel, and he breaks bread. And when he shows up in Galilee, when the disciples are fishing, we find him on the shore doing what? Making breakfast. And he eventually, in that scene, forces Peter to repent of his denials, but not until after he eats. Food first, Peter. We'll talk after. And what I took from all this is that maybe fasting in the New Testament age is not what we think it is. Maybe if the church has a reputation for not fasting the way people expect us to, maybe, at least partly, that's because we've picked up on something true. That Jesus does not require fasting. Fasting is not a prerequisite to repentance. Fasting adds nothing to the gospel. Fasting is not an entrance exam to the kingdom. Fasting does nothing to add to Jesus' finished work on the cross. Fasting was not even a characteristic of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in a sense, fasting is a strange exercise for Christians because we believe that Jesus is with us. We believe that the bridegroom is here. Why shouldn't we eat? It's part of why I I don't understand a Lenten fast. I used to try fasting on Good Friday back in the day, and meanwhile I was working in the deli, and I eventually realized this was hopeless, and so I moved to just the three hours when Jesus was on the cross, and then I realized I was automatically snacking even in the middle of that. And, and And it was silly. I look back at it now, and I feel like I was just saying no with no particular purpose, like I was living in denial of the resurrection for a day. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. Now, I don't want you to understand me. I'm not saying that we should never fast, because if Jesus had meant to say that, he would have. But I also don't think fasting is quite the same as what it was in the Old Testament, and I don't think it works the way that we often think it does. The reality of the resurrection needs to change how we think about everything, including fasting. It's not a hunger strike. Fasting is not something that we do to change God's mind, and it's not something that we do to add to the gospel. It's, it's actually, I think it's something that we do out of anticipation for what he's already going to do and what we're certain he is going to do. When you fast, you are saying no to yourself by saying yes to his will. You're asking him to replace your hungers and desires with his. You're asking him to give you that hunger and thirst for righteousness that he mentioned way back at the beginning of this sermon. Fasting doesn't work 
in the sense that we think it does. It's not something we do to earn status before God. Just like prayer, the goal is not to change God, but to change you, to line up your priorities with his. And I think that fasting has become like giving in the new covenant. There's not a hard and fast rule. Jesus has removed the heaviness of it. Just as the tithe system of the Old Testament is no longer binding, likewise, the legal fasting requirements are no longer binding. Yes, you should give generously, and yes, you should fast at times, but not out of obligation, but out of joy. Because you're no longer under the law, but under grace. In other words, when Jesus says not to look gloomy when you're fasting. He's not telling you to fake a smile. The smile should be genuine because even when your belly is empty, you are still full in Christ. We said last week that the kingdom has an already not yet character, and I think that's why we can still fast on occasion. We can eat freely because the bridegroom is here and the kingdom is inaugurated, but we can also fast because we want the kingdom to grow even more. And I think that's why the New Testament actually gives only two concrete examples of fasting in the early church, and they both relate to kingdom growth. They are not, in this case, examples of repentance but anticipation. The only biblical examples we have of early church fasting are found in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And both of them have to do with evangelism and church planting. In Acts 13, the church of Antioch fasted before they ordained Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. And in Acts 14, we read that Paul and Barnabas fasted and prayed every time they appointed elders and commissioned a new church. That's it. Those are the only examples that I could find of fasting in the New Testament. And in that case, I would say that this was an act of anticipation. And I thought to myself, maybe what this is suggesting is that the primary purpose of fasting in the church should be to focus our prayers and our energy on the growth of the kingdom in this world. And so I'm not against fasting. To the contrary, I think we're actually in a very fitting season for fasting here at LVP. Last week, I challenged us to think about our future ministry in this city because God has seen fit to put us here. We are surrounded by a city that desperately needs the gospel. And if we want to reach this city and this region, and if we're truly anticipating that God is going to do something, then maybe we need to act like the church at Antioch and start fasting and praying toward that end. I'm not going to say that as a command or tell you what that should look like or which meals you should skip and on what days and how that should go. But I would challenge you to consider fasting and praying for LVPC and for Allentown in the coming months. Not to impress me or the elders or even God, and not to convince our Father to do something he hasn't already planned on doing, but do it, if you do it, asking the Father to bend your will to match his. It's not just saying no. It's fasting and praying that he would give you a renewed hunger for his kingdom and its righteousness, particularly here in the Lehigh Valley. You're asking him to give you an appetite for his kingdom, and that's the kind of prayer that he delights to answer. Fasting doesn't make the kingdom come, but it anticipates the coming of the kingdom. It's saying no to breakfast and lunch because dad has the smoker going and he's making a huge dinner and you don't want to spoil your appetite. 
And Jesus promises here that fasting, done rightly, will be rewarded. That's a promise. But the reward starts with a deeper hunger for his kingdom. And it's a hunger that will be satisfied. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to to delve into it. We thank you that it still speaks to us, corrects us, pierces us, sanctifies us. Lord, like so many passages, this one is, is convicting because we don't do this well. Most of us struggle. But Lord, we do thank you that fasting, even our best fasting, even, even well done fasting, adds nothing to the gospel. And we thank you that you are building your kingdom, Lord, and that we don't fast so that you'll finally decide to do it, but only because we anticipate that you are going to do it. We know that you are building your church, and we want to be a part of it. Guide our hearts, Lord. Shape us and make us into the church you would have us be. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here.